and welcome to a live pop culture on D program with Carrie Smith. Uh, today is Wednesday, July 20th, and I'm joined every, as I am every Wednesday night by my co-host, Mystery Chris. How are you? Howdy, howdy. How are you, Carrie? I'm good. It's hot here, but uh, doing great. Got my truck back from the shop after three or four weeks. It was gone and uh, finally got it back today, which was great. And we are a couple steps closer to having a shower. That's my <laughs> that's my house update. <laughs> um, oh yeah, yeah. Just up top announcements. Two sisters and some yarn. Thank you, lady. She says Carrie's almost at twelve thousand subs. Y'all spread the word. Thank you. We are. We are. If you're listening to this for the first time, uh, this is a channel where. Uh, usually I'm doing, we do interviews every Thursday about somewhat related to social justice, uh, ideology, leaving different belief systems and, uh, live shows on Mondays and Fridays where we just talk about the world. And then we do this live show on Wednesdays where we talk about pop culture. Um, we've been at it now since February and we're about to hit 12,000. Thanks to you guys. If you like the show, spread the word. Um, there's my husband in the chat letting me know how long it was that my truck was gone four weeks and three days because I have no concept of time. <laughs> <laughs> he was the one that was like, Carrie, it's been a month. Like, you need to get your truck back. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, I think that's it. I've got a live interview tomorrow for Deprogrammed. It's with a guy I think he's somewhat infamous. I don't know a lot about him. I've been watching some videos and doing some research. He's somewhat interesting because he's someone who went, his name is Hunter Avalon. He went from the right to the left. I think he built his name as a YouTuber who was on the right. And now he sort of identifies with a lot of woke stuff. Um, and he said, do you think this would be cool to do because you sort of had the opposite trajectory? I know people think that about me. They think, oh, she went from the left to the right, which I don't think is actually the truth. It's sort of, I just left the left. I wouldn't say I'm on the right. I don't know where I am, but uh, but I understand why he thinks that. And I, I do understand why. I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. We'll see. Or Either that or it's going to be an absolute train wreck live. So. Uh, join us tomorrow at six o'clock Texas time and see and find out. What if y'all like convinced each other of the opposite? So you're like, okay, I'll become a leftist again. He's like, okay, I'll become on the right again. Yeah, I don't think that's I don't think that's gonna happen. But uh, yeah, somebody says right to left. That's kind of an odd bird. Yeah, that I, I think so too. And maybe maybe it's just a function of what I do and who I talk to most of the time. But I don't know a lot of people who have left the right and gone to the left, except for young people. And I do think he's fairly young. I know a lot of young people, you know, when they get to college and then they become, they become leftists and, and, uh, but I don't know a lot of people once they are adults. Hmm? They'll switch back in 10 years or so. Yeah. I think a lot of them do. I know a ton of people have left the left and I talked to a lot of them, but I, I can't imagine why you would go the other direction. <laughs> 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 we'll see. Maybe a good yeah. way to pick up women. You know. uh, possibly a good way to pick <laughs> up women. Yeah. Uh, so before we get into the topic tonight, I, I just want to thank people again who showed up for uh, book club. We did the first one subscribers only on uh, Zoom. 
actually, and we recorded it. We're going to be putting it out on Locals. And because it was about the real Anthony Fauci book by Robert Kennedy, we can't put it on YouTube. Uh, otherwise, we know we're just, we'll get a strike, come down anyway, and we'll get a strike. So we're going to put it on Locals. And you can you can go set up a Locals account if you want to at, a, I don't know, Pirate will put it in the in the chat. I think it's kerrysmith.locals.com. Um, okay, Mr. Chris, how was your week? And then we'll get started. My week was long. Uh, I worked for the man and this oppressive capitalist system mm -hmm. forced me to make a living for myself. Like, how is that a fair society, Carrie? You have to labor? Yeah, I shouldn't have to work. You, People should just give me things, especially you, since I'm black. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> you know what's funny? I don't know how you read my mind, but I just talked to my dad today and I recounted with him a conversation I had at that protest in Georgetown, Texas recently, a couple of weeks ago. He was asking me if anybody talked to me and there were a lot of people who screamed at me, but there was one guy who was willing to talk and to his credit. And he said he was a socialist and he started talking to me and he, he wanted to talk. It just became clear pretty quickly that he wasn't used to defending his ideas or maybe not even thinking through them because he immediately said what you're talking about. He was, he was talking about freedom and, you know, he's against uh, big corporations. And I was saying, well, you know, during the lockdowns the past two years, that was the biggest transfer of wealth ever from the middle class to the elite and to all these big corporations. And he said, yeah, but that's been happening forever. That's the fault of capitalism. And, you know, we need more freedom. And I was like, Okay, but so what does freedom mean to you? Because the more I think about it, freedom means um, individual rights, the freedom to save the products of my labor and to be able to own private property and to accumulate more things that I want, uh, the freedom to, you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, to have a family if I want, raise them with the fruits of my labor and, you know, without, without uh, people stealing things from me or attacking me and or forcing me to do things and he said well that's not freedom because i don't want to have to labor <laughs> he said what you just said as a joke he said it in he said it sincerely he said he said i shouldn't have to labor to have fruits and so then you go into this area of conversation that's like okay so where do the fruits come from well they come from the government okay so where does the government get those fruits? <laughs> well, this is all due to the Federal Reserve just printing more money. It's like, well, yeah, the government could just make money out of nothing. It, of course, devalues everything. But let's not think about that. Yeah, it's it's a little shocking. I'm just kind of, I don't know. He It left me speechless a little bit because he said it just comes from the government. And I said, well, but that means they're taking it from people and giving it to you. He said, yeah, but they're taking it from rich people. They need to, the people need to be in charge. So we make sure they're taking it from the right people. And, and, and again, I don't think there's a disconnect there because I, I said to him, so if you are dependent on the federal government for your bread every month, doesn't that make you the government slave? That, that's not freedom actually. And he's like, well, no, because we'll decide how much they, the people should decide how much the government gives us, you know? And I'm like, again, it doesn't make any sense. You're, you're telling me that the government's corrupt, the corporations are corrupt, all the, the rich people are corrupt, 
but you're trusting all those corrupt entities to decide how much bread you get per month. <laughs> like, what? Because <laughs> you don't want to labor? Did you have any effect on him? I don't know. Who knows? He was he was open-minded enough to talk to me without yelling at me. So maybe he'll think about some of that later. I asked him, I said, so what do you do? And he does computer work for some pharmaceutical company and he hates it. And I'm like, so maybe it's that you don't like the kind of labor you do. What if you could do anything you want to do? What would you do ideally? And he said, well, I don't want to labor. <laughs> so... <laughs> Dead end again. <laughs> Foiled. <laughs> I, just, I don't understand that how, how people don't realize that the government has the power to take your mind and everyone's money and give it to other people, particularly rich people. Like they have that legal authority to take our money and there's nothing we can do about it. They can do whatever they want. Yeah. Give it to the military industrial complex or Spend on a bunch of bombs, drop on people, just give up to corporations and subsidies and bailouts. He but kept no, saying, let's, let's just be upset at, you know, the corporations because it's one sided, of course, this equation. It's just purely the rich corporations. It's not that the government has the ability and authority to take our money and do what they want with it. Yeah. He, uh, he also kept saying, this is why democracy is so important. Because we need the majority of us who little people to to force the government to give us more bread essentially each month. And uh, I was sort of like, so you think that the majority is the best way to determine what happens in this country? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, so because the majority at one point was cool with slavery and, you know, it's like that they don't really you can see the wheels turning when you bring up some of these things. It's like, wait a minute. Uh, what do I say? You know, <laughs> Did, haven't you, considered that. <laughs> you ever see that uh, video of Peter Schiff when he went down to Occupy Wall Street uh, when that was happening like 10, 11 years ago? And he went down with a sign that said, I'm in the 1% because he's a millionaire. And so people would get in his face and start arguing. And he'd make all these arguments talking about how, you know, the government's working with the corporations and that he's, you know, on their side in terms of not wanting you know, corporations to have the influence that they, they had. And there are some people who didn't accept any of his arguments, but there were other ones that, you know, they started off really hot, but then it kind of like came really quiet. And mm -hmm. like you were saying, you could see like they were starting to think like they, they were given information that they had never been given before. And you could just see how they were processing it and like how they were actually being changed by the information uh, he was giving them. So it's really interesting. It's like an hour, hour and a half. I recommend. I, I need to watch that. I love that. I love that when you get someone who's actually willing to listen and they may not be capable of having a long discussion because they haven't thought this out, mm -hmm. but you can see the wheels are turning and they're like, Hmm, I, you know? Yeah. It's refreshing too. It's nice these days when people are actually listening to other people and trying to have that conversations because we're so used to people not. So <laughs> I always, I always think it's sad when I'm complimenting people or, you know, us saying, well, you know, at least they're willing to talk. I'm like, well, things weren't always this bad. The bar's really talk. low. I know. <laughs> Awful. Yeah. Um, well, I think we should probably get into, oh, yeah, Tomsky's here, all set. I think we should probably get into our topic. So we, you told me, why don't you set it up, what you want to talk about this week? 
I want to talk about dirty commies. So, <laughs> no. uh, so uh, I had the idea of talking about the Red Scare and um, the investigations into communists and Hollywood that was done by the American government in 1940s and 50s. I knew a little bit about it, but, you know, I use this excuse to, to learn more because it's one of the things about the program we're doing here. You know, it's an opportunity for us to learn a lot and hopefully people listening, some people learn a little, some things here and there. But uh, yeah, so I wanted to talk about that and here we are. Cool. So one of the things I found out, and if, if you didn't know this, don't worry, because I didn't either, kind of ignorant, is that there were two red scares there, we call it, I've always just referred to the Red Scare, and I was thinking about the 40s and 50s. But there were actually two. And the first one happened during World War I. And it was between 1917 and 1920. And it was in part um, caused by the, the Bolshevik Revolution that was happening in Russia. And that, that one was sort of uh, mostly, from what I could tell from my reading, focused on identifying communists within the government Although it did have some, it, it definitely dipped into entertainment as well. And then there was the second one, which is the one I think maybe most of us think of when we say the Red Scare. That was the second Red Scare in the 40s and 50s. And, and that was accompanied by the trials of uh, the, the House Un-American Activities Committee and these different trials they were having of, of uh, government officials and, and people in Hollywood and trying to root out the communists or anybody with communist sympathies. So did you know that, that there were two of them? No, I didn't know that there was a red scare in, during World War One. I, I, I didn't know that the government passed, you know, laws going after people who were um, threatening to try to overthrow the government or um, maybe who sh showed some solidarity with, you know, Germany. Um, but I didn't know about the communist aspect of it. Yes. Yeah, and this is a, a right. clarification, too, from Kevin. Yes, McCarthy and the, the House of Un-American Act, uh, Activities Committee were two different things. That's right. He was not, Senator Joseph McCarthy was actually not on that committee. He had his own hearings separate from those. Yeah, and his hearings were, you know, dealing with government officials, mm -hmm. which there were a lot that were communist in the government. But we don't talk about that anymore. We just talk about the poor people who are blacklisted. Well, let's pull up. So I know you have some links prepared. I went and got one that just tells us the broad strokes. So we know what we're talking about so we can define it. Pirate, can you pull up that first article? Um, this is from the, it's mtsu.edu. Oh, wait, that's not it. Nope. Not that. Nope. Nope. <laughs> it's okay we gave him a lot of links guys it's the one called it's the very first link I put in the private chat called Red Scare uh, we, I did I'll put it back there I'll put it in there right now no worries <laughs> boom Oh, you gave him a lot of links. This one has some cool art in it, too. They had art, you know, propaganda, I guess you could say, sounding the anti-communist alarm. Okay, yeah, so make that one a little larger so people can read it, sir. Thank you, Pirate Tomsky's with us tonight. 
everybody say hello to pirate. So I'll just read through some of this. This is very brief. Uh, the Red Scare. The first anti-communist alarm or Red Scare of the United States occurred between 1917 and 1920, precipitated by the events of World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. The term red came from the color of the flag used by Marxist and communist groups. Laws such as the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918 criminalized many forms of speech. The Sedition Act was the broadest with its criminalization of any disloyal language, whether printed or spoken, about the government of the United States. A second Red Scare came with a revival of anti-communist feeling after World War II that lasted into the 1950s. Oh, and it doesn't say so here, but the, um, the House of Un-American Activities was uh, the committee. It was formed in 1938. Um, so 1938 to like the 1950s was sort of the second Red Scare. In both periods, First Amendment rights providing for free expression and free association were endangered and put on trial. The first Red Scare resulted in many Supreme Court cases dealing with speech. Convictions under the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act were upheld in several Supreme Court cases in 1919, including in Schneck versus United States, in which Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. first outlined his clear and present danger test, Debs versus United States and Abrams versus United States. The executive branch also played a part, most notably the Attorney General Mitchell Palmer in the so-called Palmer Raids which authorized the arrests of several thousand suspected radicals. Many were deported to the Soviet Union. In the 1920s, prosecutions under state syndicalism statutes were upheld in favor of state curtailment of free speech in Gitlow versus New York and Whitney versus California. Many years later, Whitney was overruled by Brandenburg versus Ohio. Yet cases were also decided in favor of protection of free speech. Among them were Fisk versus Kansas, Dijon versus Oregon, and Herndon versus Lowry. Um, the second Red Scare dealt with loyalty to the U.S. government. The post-World War II years, and this is what we're mostly going to be talking about is the second one. The post-World War II years precipitated a second Red Scare on the federal level with the late 1940s and the early 1950s in the, uh, the heyday. In Congress, the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, was approved as a permanent committee in 1945. I uh, don't think that's true. Somebody fact check that. I think it was 1938. Um, it was abolished in 1975. Congress also enacted the Subversive Activities Control Act of 1950, the McCann Act, which made it a crime to take actions that might contribute to a totalitarian dictatorship. So it made it a crime to take actions that might contribute to a totalitarian di dictatorship within the United States. I want to highlight that because just just keep it in your mind and, and think if it reminds you of anything familiar that maybe has been happening, any kind of high profile uh, investigation that's going on, having to do with the month, first month of the year. <laughs> <laughs> number six in it. With the number six in it. Uh, okay. It made it a crime to take actions that might contribute to a totalitarian dictatorship within the United States. And the Communist Control Act of 1954, which prohibited communists from holding office in labor organizations. Senator Joseph McCarthy, chair of the Senate Committee on Government Operations, brought many people before his committee to question their loyalty to the United States and unsuccessfully investigated the armed services for communist influences. 
President Harry S. Truman issued an executive order that provided for a federal loyalty program, and the FBI, under J. Edgar Hoover, complied, or compiled detailed information on suspected communists. In Dennis versus United States, the judiciary sustained the administration's prosecutions under the earlier Smith Act of 1940, which criminalized teaching or advocating the overthrow of government by force or being a member of an organization that engaged in such activity. The broad power of the legislature to curtail First Amendment rights subsequently was limited in Yates versus United States in 1957 and Scales versus the United States in 1961. Still, a requirement in the McCarran Act mandating that communists register with the Attorney General was sustained in Communist Party of the U.S. versus Subversive Activities Control Board. Sorry, someone's yelling in my house. Okay. <laughs> However, in United States versus Revel, 1967, a blanket prohibition against communists working in defense industries was declared to violate the First Amendment right of association. Over time, the perception that those investigating communism had engaged in excess led to the demise of most of their abuses. Fears eventually diminished as prophecies of imminent communist takeover proved unfounded. Okay. It was a pretty short article, but I think that gives a nice overview of what we're talking about. Well, it's very frustrating growing up in society that told me and really everyone that there was nothing to the investigations that Huack and McCarthy did. And then come a few years ago, I at least found out that there were a ton of communists all throughout the government in Hollywood. Uh, Soviet Union was directing a lot of these people. In Hollywood, they infiltrated numerous trade organizations, uh, new, numerous liberal groups, and bit by bit kind of moved them or at least tried in some cases to move them towards, uh, you know, far left, you know, communist type ideo ideologies. But it's just amazing at how well they being, you know, communists or communist sympathizers, how well they were able to cover up all of that and to convince us that they didn't exist. It's like that saying, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world that he didn't exist. Well, it's like with the communists, the greatest trick the communists ever pulled is convincing the world that they didn't exist. And there was tons of government information about communists. Like a lot of the communists who were subpoenaed, like the government had information on them. The FBI had information on them. But a lot of times the investigations or when they defer you know, prosecution or whatever to the Justice Department, Justice Department wouldn't follow through because Justice Department was compromised. There were a lot of people in Justice Department who were communist. Um, the FBI had broken, I think it was the FBI, had broken um, some of the communist codes and they knew, you know, what the orders coming from Moscow were. But, you know, there was fears of um, having to reveal this and expose that they are you know, knew uh, what the, the Moscow was, was saying. And so uh, every step of the way, there was all this obfuscation and, and you know, cover-ups and people destroying evidence. And it was just, it's, it's, not, it's not just amazing that they were able to cover all this up or most of it, but the fact that communism in general is not considered just as bad or worse than national socialism.
Nazis. Because mm-hmm. if any of these people who, you know, were communists were actual Nazis, you wouldn't see the same sympathy for them. You, you wouldn't mm-hmm. see all these Hollywood movies being made about the the ten that were blacklisted. Uh, you, you wouldn't see all these people glamorizing, uh, you know, communists in in the government or or even you know Soviet Russia. Uh, see all these people just attacking, you know, Western values, the foundation of Western civilization. It's just, it, it just boggles my mind that we live in a society where these two things, you know, or this one thing is, is tolerated. That even though there's not a lot of high profile co- people who I publicly identify as communism or communist, you know that communism in general, that ideology is so widespread. We see it everywhere. We've seen these seeds that they had planted decades ago now grow into these horrible, disgusting flowers that are threatening Western civilization. And so I just I, I just can't get over <laughs> just how crazy of a world we live in. Yeah, it's um I'm I'm recalling a study that I read. Here it is. Among university professors, this is just from 2019, just a few short years ago. And in this study, uh, it was, I think it was 25% of university professors identified as Marxist. Here it was. Okay. It's from a 2004 poll. A 2004 poll found that among sociology professors, 25% self-identify as Marxist. (laughs) Only twenty-five. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot who are Marxists and don't realize it because social justice is a, in my opinion, it's a definitely form of Marxism. It's just based around identity and power rather than um, uh, class and wealth. But just, they would probably wouldn't call themselves Marxists, the social justice ones. I just use a kind of catch-all term. I just call them anti-capitalist because you know, oftentimes, you know maybe a Marxist or socialist, communist, whatever, a lot of times they'll play semantics and, you know, try to, you know, debate you like, well, that's not actually socialism. That's not actually communism and that. And so I'm like, I'm just going to call you all anti-capitalist because that's what you hate and you want to see gone. We can, you know, deal with the, the minutia later, but let's just establish that you hate capitalism. Do you think... I want to go back to something you were saying. Do you think that most people our age were raised thinking that like when we heard about the red scare and McCarthyism and stuff, do you think we were raised um, with the, the idea that, that they're actually, that it was all made up and that there were no communists, that it was kind of a, like the Salem witch trials, which Arthur Miller famously was a communist, was a, was caught up in the, <laughs> yeah. he was on the list. Uh, he did the the Crucible, which had some. You can find any number of articles comparing McCarthyism to the Salem witch trials. Yeah. Uh, do you think that we were raised with that? That people have that belief that that it was all sort of fabricated and that there were actually no communists to find. I yes, I do. I certainly grew up thinking that there were no communists and that it was just a bunch of paranoia. And also when you look at history books, at least the ones that I was reading here in Texas, and I assume most other places in the United States, barely talked about the Soviet Union, barely talked about Mao. Like, only in the past 10 years did I find out about how many people were murdered or starved to death in the Soviet Union and in Mao's China. Like, I had no idea. Like, there's if you combine those totals, it's 
got to be well over 100 million people. And there's not a word or very little of it in these history books, but they'll spend all day talking about Adolf H and how bad, which he was bad. I'm, I'm not saying he's good, but they won't talk about these evil that came from these other countries and this ideology specifically. It's just, it's again, it's amazing. And it's creepy too <laughs> when you think about it. Cause think about how many people in the right spots, you know, just kind of, eh, let's just, toss that part of this history book out or let's just kind of rewrite some things here and there, but just how widespread it is, how many people are at least, you know, sympathetic to that ideology, which is very disturbing. Can I ask you another question about all this? Cause I'm not really sure what I think about some of it. Uh, just reading some of it for the first time. Do you think that, for example, well, I agree with you, by the way, they place a very different in history. If you, if you, especially if you grew up when we did, and it's probably even worse now, you learn about the evils of fascism and the Nazis, and rightly so, but you don't learn about the evils of communism. And and I went to two great schools, and we didn't really spend any time on it. Um, and and I think you're probably right. I think a lot of people had the impression that the that what was wrong with the the McCarthyism was that there, it was actually all smoke and mirrors that there weren't any communists to ferret out. Um, do you think that if it were, if McCarthyism had focused on rooting out fascists and Nazis, would they have been justified? Would the government have been justified in setting up? And I read somewhere they were originally the house on American activities committee was, was trying to ferret out both Marxist communists, you know, and fascists. Mm -hmm. um, would they have been justified in doing that? Well, I mean, the thing is, these communists and fascists are people who were dedicated to overthrowing the government. That does pose a threat to the government. Now, in terms of free speech, I, being a person who supports free speech, support the right of a person to say horrendous things and support these awful ide uh, ideologies. And so I... I I struggled too when looking at the, these trials because certainly they exposed a lot of the corruption, even though there was an attempt to to try to cover a lot of that stuff up. But it did bring a lot of it to the forefront and got people discussing about these these possibilities. But at the same time, being someone who is a, a supporter, defender of, of freedom of speech, uh, I do have issues with some of the stuff um and in fact i looked up a little professor i'm gonna read this quote real quick from him um it says on this web page when he's talking about a common misconception about the blacklist um he says uh in the original hearings of the 1947 uh the ones that uh, he focused on the unfriendly witnesses mostly screenwriters who refused to cooperate with the committee based their refusal on the constitutional rights under the first amendment the freedom of expression clause not as popularly assumed under the fifth amendment which enshrines the right to refuse to testify on ground of self-incrimination. Had they relied on the Fifth Amendment, however, they would have had to remain silent, and they very much wanted to speak their piece in public hearings before the newsreel cameras. Uh, ironically, if they had relied on their Fifth Amendment protections, they wouldn't have uh, later gone to jail for contempt of Congress. And so that's kind of a nuanced thing there because a lot of people say well how could these people have been convicted if you know they're violating you know um 
if they're expressing their, their you know free speech but based on that understanding you know from that and from what i've i've read that it was more of a technicality of, of, that they didn't because they didn't want to plead the fifth they wanted yeah. to speak out against yeah, so they didn't answer questions right they refused so, to answer but they didn't plead the fifth and they spoke out in their own way against the the committee itself yeah and and i i do have a couple of videos about that if you'd like to bring that up uh pirate if you could please bring up the newsreel one first so this newsreel one is one a uh, newsreel from the original hearings in 1950 well uh, yeah while you're bringing that one up i'm just going to read this really quickly we got a super chat from someone named pirate tomsky and <laughs> uh it says <laughs> it's 10 lira and it says i'm kidding i know it's pounds <clears throat> mystery chris Effing A, the fact that people don't see communism as bad as all other murderous ideologies is a stain on our modern society. That ideology murdered more people in history than all others. Mm -hmm. It's true. Thank you, Pirate. And interesting thing, too, about the... Uh, well, let's watch this and I'll, I'll make a comment after. Go ahead and play that, please. Attention. This is an official civil defense warning. This is not a test. The United States is oh, nuclear... Can we play the other one first, please? Sorry, sorry about it. Um, the, yes, that's the one, and then we can go to the second one. Be stopped. The growing menace of communism arouses the House of Representatives Un-American Activities Committee. Among the well-informed witnesses testifying is J. Edgar Hoover, head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mr. Hoover speaks with authority on the subject. The Communist Party of the United States is a fifth column if there ever was one. It is far better organized than were the Nazis in occupied countries prior to their capitulation. They are seeking to weaken America, just as they did in their era of, of obstruction when they were aligned with the Nazis. Their goal is the overthrow of our government. There is no doubt as to where a real communist loyalty rests. Their allegiance is to Russia, not the United States. Communism in reality is not a political party. It is a way of life, an evil and malignant way of life. It reveals a condition akin to disease that spreads like an epidemic. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. Mr. Bullitt's testimony is based on knowledge gained during his residence in the Red Capitol. The communists are red fascist soviet imperialism that's true has replaced nazi imperialism as a threat to the peace of the world hitler never succeeded in building up in the countries he intended to conquer instruments so powerful as stalin's communist parties and their associated fellow travelers. Stalin will not stop of his own volition. He can only be stopped. Talk so slow. Uh, <laughs> do you want to make a comment or do we want to move to the second video? Well, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that one first, because I kind of agree with almost everything they're saying. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I keep thinking about J. Edgar Hoover in a dress. Yeah. Uh, doing weird things to his boyfriend. I'm not fond of J. Edgar Hoover, what I know about him from history, but in that clip, I'm kind of like, eh, he has a point. Yeah. Although, yeah. I don't, where I get, I, I don't like the government having that power over people right. to do what right. they were doing and to, and to, uh, like a lot of Americans lost their jobs mm -hmm. on communists or people who are suspected communists, but to give them that power to say, you can go in and, and ferret out the un-American element, whether whether at the time they were calling communism un-American, which I believe it is. Well, now they're calling Trump supporters un-American. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. to give them that power, it, 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 things change over time culturally and who's in power changes and, and the definitions change. And we've seen one of the biggest things that the woke Marxists do, the social justice Marxists, is they, they are very focused on changing language. Um, and changing the meaning of words. And so what they're calling on American today, they want to, they're calling people who didn't get the jab on mm. American, you know, they were supporting people who didn't get the jab being fired from their jobs, losing employment, some of the same kind of things. And so that's, I, I can't go that far. I don't think it's the government's job to forcibly round up, uh, deport or, um, in prison or fire people for having an evil ideology because then y you can't trust them to, to accurately define what's the evil ideology. You know, one day they're going to say, well, it's communism. I happen to agree with that. But then you've given them that power. And next thing you know, they're going to say, oh, no, it's what you believe. <laughs> like, exactly. coming for you now. So. Well, it I looked up the, uh, read a little bit about the Smith Act, which you mentioned in the article that you're reading from, where it criminalized, um, I think it was, was it speech or, or I think it was speech that talked about the overthrowing of, you know, the government or was it actions or speech? I can't remember, but uh, I was thinking like, well, could any of these people ever envision a scenario when it's justified to overthrow the government? <laughs> it's like it's just assuming like you can never try to overthrow the government how dare you well our country was founded on overthrowing a government exactly <laughs> <laughs> i can think and of that, a few situations but and, and, and <laughs> weird thing too because we talk about a lot of government overreach and like a lot of corrupt things government's doing today but when you look through the past there are a lot of times when we assume government was less which overall i would say is less but there are certainly a lot of moments where they were very heavy-headed and, and they were violating what i would consider to be you know uh, you know human rights or natural rights so something you know uh putting some kind of you know uh, uh law or, or something that went against people, you know, speech, you know, that violated, you know, what the government considered to be proper speech or something. It's just like, oh, that goes counter to what you know, the nation was founded on. So it's it's really odd when you, when you think about how much the, the uh, intervention and incursion into the daily lives, into the private sector, how, how much effect that's had on, on our culture, you know, yeah. Yeah. even... TV, like um, I, I want to eventually on another show talk about um, Saturday morning cartoons. But one of the things that created, you know, the awesome Saturday morning cartoons that began in the 80s was uh, the government deregulating uh, TV networks, allowing uh, 
smaller networks to come about, um, allowing the syndication networks to and syndication market to come about. And that's when Transformers and G.I. Joe and Thundercats and Jim and all these other shows got really popular. And that was due to Ronald Reagan, which but people who love the Saturday morning cartoons in the 80s have Ronald Reagan's FCC to thank for that. But part of that, there were a lot of regulations on TV. You know, there's a reason why we had three and kind of four uh, TV networks from the 50s up until mid-60s, you know, NBC, CBS, ABC, and then DuPont, which went out of business. But that was a, a oligopoly that was helped to be, um, was maintained in part due to government regulation. And once they relaxed that, you saw the growth that happened in the 70s and 80s. And then corporations started gobbling things up, which I, I want to investigate some more because I don't believe that's purely a free market. But So you're anyway. saying that government deregulation gave us the Transformers? Yes. What about the Care Bears? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> I think Care Bears were just on network TV. I don't think they, they came about through the, specifically because of syndication. Uh, oh, okay. So just Transformers. Gotcha. Yeah. Anyway, we'll- <laughs> save the rest of that for Saturday morning cartoon episode but yeah um so we want to play the second video yeah this... let's play your second one yeah this one is like an excerpt from some program or something and I, I think the guy talking in it or the guy they interview and this is <laughs> they were Bears <laughs> were commies somebody says alan smurfs <laughs> but yeah uh, so this one, uh, I think one of the guys, Pirate, if you can uh, bring up the one that the Hugh, who, 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 uh... Is this it? No. No. <laughs> Pirate. <laughs> Thundercats are Thundercats. Yeah. That, was, that will be a fun episode when we do that one. <laughs> <laughs> America's Cold War years were filled with fear. Daily radio and newspaper reports blared frightening stories of advancing communism, imminent nuclear war, and Soviet spies. America responded with an all-out offensive against communist infiltration. The growing menace of communism arouses the House of Representatives Un-American Activities Committee. Among the well-informed witnesses testifying is J. Edgar Hoover, head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mr. Hoover speaks with authority on the subject. Communism in reality is not a political party. It is a way of life, an evil and malignant way of life. It reveals a condition akin to disease that spreads like an epidemic. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. While Hoover's FBI worked behind the scenes, Congress expanded its own high-profile investigations, often ignoring the civil rights of the accused. Are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I believe I have the right to be confronted with any evidence which supports this question. I should like to see what you have. Oh, well, you would. Yes. Beginning in 1947, the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, investigated communist influence in Hollywood. 
The committee was concerned with the power of movies to persuade audiences with subversive messages. With movie stars and other industry professionals called to testify, the hearings became red carpet events. For the anti-communist witch hunt, it was a publicity bonanza. It is completely uh, against the un-American feeling, this communistic thing. I believe I would, I would move to the state of Texas if it ever came here, because I think the Texans would kill them on sight. Yeah. We have sold them some films. Good many years ago, uh, they bought the Three Little Pigs and used it to Russia. If I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia or some other unpleasant place. Most witnesses cooperated with the committee. However, a small group who became known as the Hollywood Ten refused to answer questions, citing protection under the First Amendment. Among them, screenwriter John Howard Lawson. The question is, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I am framing my answer in the only way in which any American citizen can frame his then answer you denied, to a question then you, invades his, absolutely invades Then his you mind. deny to, you, you refuse to answer that question, is that correct? I have told you that I will All right. offer my beliefs, my affiliations, and Here's everything the else Here's the to the American public, and they will know where I stand, as they do from what I have written. Stand away from the stand. I have for Americanism for many years, and I Stand away from the stand. Therefore, it is the unanimous opinion of this subcommittee John Howard Lawson is in contempt of Congress. The Hollywood Ten were convicted of contempt and sent to prison. Thousands of others were blacklisted for a year, videos, forcing many talented movie makers into exile and obscurity. Among the friendly witnesses who testified in 1947 was a B-movie actor named I love how they call him a no B-movie actor. <laughs> that four decades later, Reagan would play a leading role in bringing the Cold War to an end. He was in Dark Victory with Betty Davis. That wasn't a B-movie. Perhaps Hollywood wasn't influenced by communists, but it was affected by the hearings. Movie studios added to the hysteria by cranking out such anti-communist films as Is This Tomorrow, Red Planet Mars, and dozens of others. But tawdry films did little to distract President Truman from what he saw as a perversion of American democracy. Now I'm going to tell you how we're not going to fight communism. We're not going to transform our fine FBI into a Gestapo secret police. We're not going to try to control what our people read and say and think. We're not going to turn the United States into a right-wing totalitarian country in order to deal with a left-wing totalitarian threat. In short, we're not going to end democracy. We're going to keep the Bill of Rights on the books. Against the president's objections, Congress passed more dubious legislation, including the Internal Security Bill of 1950, which empowered the government to take action against anyone it deemed a security risk. Truman called it the greatest danger to freedom of speech, press, and assembly since the Alien and Sedition Laws of 1798. I actually like what Truman had to say there. Mm -hmm about how we're not going to turn the FBI into a secret police, you know, targeting people and trying to find out who's a witch, basically. Um, 
I know that may not be popular because I detest communism. And I know there's a lot of people in this channel who detest it, but I still don't think that the government should be used as an arm to, to ferret out who the wrong thinkers are. It just, that gives me chills because you're giving power to people who, as I said before, like they have the power to even change that definition of who's the, who's the wrong thinker now, you know? Right. And, you know, these, these hearings, you know, they're saying it did bring some attention to, you know, what was going on. But as we know, a lot of communists were just driven deeper underground and they stopped publicly identifying as communists, but still spread the ideology through movies. Cause I think that's one of the interesting things about uh, these hearings. Cause it wasn't just about the individuals, you know, who were communists. It was about the movies that they were producing and whether these movies were promoting communist uh, ideals. And I found a movie um, called Mission to Moscow that wasn't even subtle in its um, glorification of Soviet Russia. Um, if we want to watch that trailer, um, because... Before we watch that, Pirate, I just put a link in the private chat. I just want to make this quick point. Uh, if you could bring up this this link about the Texas Attorney General, which is the state I'm in, uh, Paxton. Uh, this is this is a article from our press release from March of this year, and this is about Attorney General Ken Paxton here in Texas, who has joined any Indiana in a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit to force the Biden administration to release documents that will shed light on its labeling parents domestic terrorists for voicing their opinions at, a at school board meetings across the country. The complaint focuses on the actions of the National School Boards Association, reportedly committed in tandem with the White House and the Department of Justice, the DOJ, when they accused parents across the United States of domestic terrorism last fall. That happened, that happened in the fall of 2021. Um, and so here's a quote from, uh, Ken Paxton. He says, there is no way that NSBA can justify why they referred to concerned parents across the country as domestic terrorists when it's obvious that they are being targeted for their political beliefs. The Biden administration cannot silence parents for exercising their constitutional right rights and treat them like terrorists simply for having concerns about what their children are being taught. Um, we don't have to read any more of that. That's just just that's just one example of what I mean by I think it's afraid, I'm afraid of giving the government the power to, to root out um, what they're calling here like domestic terrorists or you know people what, what, radicals or you know whoever whoever's labeled as as having the wrong beliefs at a certain point in history um, and right now it's not communists that are being labeled that way it's it's parents who are concerned about what's happening in their kids' schools. Yeah, so, like okay. Anyone who criticizes the government at that moment. <laughs> right, right. Okay, sorry. Uh, Let's no. get to your video. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yes. So, this is uh, mission. You skip ahead of, I don't know what that. Oh, you go ahead and play that. I think it's just the intro to the.
mission to Moscow is my report to the American people as ambassador of the United States to the Soviet Union. I wrote it as I saw it and lived it. Warner Brothers have courageously filmed it, true to the history as I saw it in the making. Mission to Moscow, the behind-the-scenes story of every world-shaking crisis of our day, with Walter Houston as Ambassador Davies, Anne Harding as Mrs. Davies, with a superb cast portraying Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, Premier Molotov, President Kalinin, Maxim Litvinov, Marshal Timoshenko, Cordell Hull, Colonel Faymanville, Was there a guy named Premier Molotov? Laval, and <laughs> other world figures reenacting for the screen the cataclysmic events which changed the entire course of human history. Behind the walls of the Kremlin, you'll learn the secret of the Russian power that smashed the Nazi tide. Behind the glitter of state receptions, you'll see Shigemitsu, von Ribbentrop, and their Axis satellites plotting to conquer the world. Even at the Russian ballet, there is intrigue and conspiracy. And at the sensational purge trials, you'll learn for the first time the whole shocking truth about the plot that set off the powder keg of the world. So you were working out a deal, naturally, with representatives of Germany, of Germany and Japan. So, okay. Based on that trailer, what what do you think? I mean, it seems kind of uh, chummy towards towards uh, the Soviet Union. You bet it is. <laughs> uh, so the guy, um, I believe, he was an ambassador to uh, Russia. Uh, he was allowed to tour. Uh, Moscow and other places and he ended up writing a book about his experiences but in it he totally whitewashed many of the things that Stalin was doing uh, in the Soviet Union and I have I, uh, I want to read just this expert uh, excerpts from this article uh, this is three paragraphs that talks a little bit about that so it says the movie follows Davies' book pretty closely, and that's a problem when you consider this, his horrible takes on events like the purge trials. In the movie, the three trials Stalin held for so-called party traitors are lumped into one long legal affair, which on screen Davies deems fair and just. And quote, based on my 20 years trial practice, he says, I'd be inclined to believe those confessions. These trials, mind you, were designed solely to eliminate Stalin's critics and consolidate his power. Uh, the cult, uh, court decision was foregone conclusion. Each of these men would be executed for totally fabricated offenses based on confessions the secret police extracted through torture. And goes on to say, Warner Brothers sunk an absurd amount of money into the advertising of the movie. The budget was supposedly an unprecedented $500,000, but despite some friendly early reviews, Mission to Moscow inspired mass controversy. Writers John Dewey and Susan Lafour, uh, Florit 
uh, submitted a letter to the New York Times condemning the film as totalitarian propaganda for mass consumption. The new leader compiled criticisms from dozens of intellectuals in the pages of its paper, and the New York City Board of Transportation ordered all advertisements for the film removed from the subway. The Republican National Committee hinted it would use Mission to Moscow's father in its next presidential campaign, and although Franklin Roosevelt easily won his third and final reelection, the movie did become a political weapon. Yeah, because it was made at Franklin Roosevelt's request. <laughs> That's what I read. Isn't that true? Uh, yeah, I believe that's what it is. Yes, yes, uh, I believe so. Because um, it goes on here that uh, in 1947, Jack Warner was called to testify before the House of Un-American Activities Committee. The congressman asked Warner about Mission to Moscow, which had been highlighted as an example of Soviet influence permitting the film, uh, per, uh, permutating the film industry. Warner defended the movie, telling the committee that the picture was made when our country was fighting for its existence, with Russia as one of our allies, he continued. If making Mission to Moscow was subversive activity, then the American Liberty ships that carried food and guns to the Russian sites and American vessels which conveyed them were likewise engaged in subversive activities. But Warner had little to worry about. It was the movie's screenwriter, Howard Koch, who would pay the price. Koch was branded a communist and blacklisted from Hollywood in 1951. He subsequently moved to Europe, where he and his wife, Anne, both under, uh, wrote under pseudonyms. He was Peter Howard, and she was Anne Rodney. But yes, so... So the screenwriter was branded a communist and had to flee. Mm -hmm. But Franklin Roosevelt, who requested that this film be made... And they made it in this faux documentary style. It wasn't a real documentary. <laughs> it's a fake documentary. Yes. Uh, he wasn't. He he won re-election. <laughs> 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 he well, didn't have to flee. Yeah. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, a lot of communists in Hollywood uh, up until World War II were very much against fascism and really through World War II, of course. But, you know, a lot of them based a good chunk of their identity on opposing fascism. And when uh, Hitler came about, they were like, yeah, we got, you know, the fascist bad guy we can all rally against and we can get the liberals to to join us in opposing uh, uh, fascism. But then uh, Stalin signs a non-aggression pact with Hitler uh, and a lot of these communists kind of had a temporary loss of uh, uh, faith or a bit of an identity crisis because they're like, how could he side with this fascist? I thought we were fighting against fascism. But then, of course, Hitler breaks that and, and invades Russia or eventually loses. And so a lot of them were cheering. I was reading one guy, I forget his name, one of the stars. He said when he heard that you know Hitler had broke the pact and invaded uh, Russia, uh, he pulled over his car and started crying. He was so happy. <laughs> so warped they are but he was so happy that now he could root for the Soviet Union now they're anti-fascist again and so his ideology was saved in that oh man this makes me think of what's going on today with Antifa yes exactly. because Antifa which by the way it's a lie it's like a lot of their marketing that they do they put the name in front of you know they'll say like anti-racist to hide the fact that they're racist. They'll say Antifa, anti-fascist, to hide the fact that they're fascist. But they, they basically say that 
if if you're not in the Antifa handbook, it says if you're if you're not uh, a Marxist that you're a fascist. They mm-hmm. view it as this really one or the other, you know, this false dichotomy. You have to pick one when really they're both they're two sides of the same messed up totalitarian coin. Like I don't want to either side of that coin, but the fact that this guy saw it that way is like, oh, Hitler's in, invaded Russia now. Like I'm so happy because now Russia will be called anti-fascist, and we can <laughs> and we can support the Soviet Union and the communists, right? Like that's crazy, but that's what's happening today with all these yeah. Antifa punks. And the thing is, listen, I can give a benefit of doubt for some people back then. Like I know a lot of civil rights workers and organizers, you know, were socialists and some communists. And I could understand how some of them would believe the lies of the communists telling them that, you know, Russia wasn't about, you know, racism or anything, or, you know, communism was about that. It's just about the, the uh, international brotherhood of workers and uniting workers against, you know, the oppressors. And, and that was a very attractive uh, thing for a lot of people. And I can understand how some of them maybe believe that, but once the horrors of what Stalin did and Mao did came out, there's really no excuse anymore. Yeah. At that point, like um, I I read a book called Color, Communism, Common Sense, and it's on archive.org. It's not even a book really. It's like a pamphlet. It's like less than 50 pages, but the guy is a, uh, a black man named Manning Johnson. He was a, uh, about communist in the 1940s, he uh, ended up abandoning his communist beliefs uh, once he found out that the communists who had uh, joined up with the NAACP and all these other civil rights groups really had no interest in helping black people and building up black neighborhoods and investing in, in the black areas and black people, that they just wanted to force uh, desegregation in the South mm-hmm. because it was going to lead to violence a ton of violence and that this was something that could spark a revolution that would lead all the way to washington dc and help them overthrow the government and so at that point he was like i'm done this is evil (laughs) i'm out and so i think that's something that again i was saying that's reflective of a lot of civil rights people how they believed in lies because i i can understand if you're in the segregated south experience a ton of racism how it's easy to believe the lies of you know people coming from you know soviet union saying you know there's no oppression here we're not about that you know you know capitalism is why your ancestors were enslaved and now we have people saying the same thing if you notice black lives matter the organization that did very little if any investing in black areas building up black schools you know uh, improving black homes, black areas, you know, spending time on tutoring kids. They didn't do any of that from what I can tell. All that money went someplace else. I wonder where that went. And so you you have the same thing going on where all these organizations, you know, but to me, it's, it's I just, I don't understand how anybody could still buy into that when we know there's no excuse you have the internet you can look up these videos you can read these texts i mean we we have more knowledge at our fingertips than like all the kings throughout history that tried to amass the largest collection of knowledge by collecting all the books and manuscripts and things they had like that's nothing compared to what we have just getting on the internet typing in a few words into a search engine 
We can get old books. We can get uh, speeches. We can get government documents. But yet so many people choose not to inform themselves. But something like communism, like you think that it would still be as people would still know how bad it is, even if they didn't know much about it. Because I, growing up, even though I didn't know about all the people who died and were murdered under Stalin and Mao, I still knew that communism was bad. There was still enough of the culture that still took the side that capitalism was good and communism was bad, the Soviet Union was bad, that I, I still understood that aspect, even though I didn't know much about it. And so now that the Soviet Union's gone, now it's just this this faceless ideology that, you know, people tend to to think, oh, it's not doesn't it's not much of a threat, it doesn't really exist much, but we see it, it's everywhere. Uh oh, you're muted, Carrie. Who's the guy that you just mentioned at the beginning here? Manning, you Johnson. Manning Johnson. Yeah, you can yeah, you can find him. And he he wrote Color, Communism, and Common Sense. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Something you said about how he came to realize that the Communist Party was just using the civil rights movement and using black people to spread communist ideology in the United States. Mm. Is that a fair representation of what you said? Yes. Okay, you know what's interesting? When I was doing my reading for this topic uh i found and I, I couldn't remember where i found it so i was just looking through but i found several places that referred to um when they were talking about the first red scare okay so 1917 to uh like the 1920s yeah uh that that they said during that time um that there that there was this sort of uh untrue allegations that communism was somehow trying to infiltrate the civil rights movement and the black communities <laughs> and to use and take advantage of the, the civil rights movement for equality for black Americans. And the way it's presented as if that wasn't, is as if that wasn't true, that wasn't happening, but it was happening. Yeah, that's true. Again, I'm not saying like all the, you know, civil rights people were, you know, evil. I think a lot of them were just, you know, gullible and just kind of, we're in a bad spot and, and gravitate to some really bad ideology, similar to what we see a lot of people today. Here's here's one of the places where I saw it. Uh, this was on, I mean, this was just on Wikipedia about the first Red Scare. It says, Bolshevism and the threat of a communist-inspired revolution in the U.S. became an overriding explanation for challenges to the social order, even for such largely unrelated events as incidents of interracial violence during the red summer of 1919. So if you read about the red summer, this is 1919. It was this series of uh, racist riots and um, terrorism and, and lynchings or, you know, people, mostly white people attacking black people. And then in some of these cities, black people fought back. Um, and, but if you go down to that section and you read about how it was related to the red scare, it says, uh, in the summer, uh, well, let me skip down. During the first Red Scare of 1919, following the 1917 Russian Revolution, anti-Bolshevik sentiment in the United States quickly followed on the anti-German sentiment arising in the war years. Many politicians and government officials, together with much of the press and the public, feared an imminent attempt to overthrow the U.S. government to create a new regime modeled on that of the Soviets. Authorities viewed with alarm African-Americans' advocacy of racial equality, labor rights, and the rights of victims of mobs to defend themselves. And, and see, the thing is, 
it's I don't think it's so much that maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think it's so much that they viewed that with alarm as they did. They viewed the infiltration of communism and communist ideals into those movements, like taking advantage of those movements. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there were socialist groups that did do some defense of blacks and they were getting unfair trials like the uh, I think it was the Scottsboro Boys. I forget what state it was, but I was thinking it was the 19, was it 30s, I think, where it's like seven black boys were accused of assaulting two white girls. And they, I think they're all sent to prison or most of them were sent to prison. And the socialist group or groups uh, rallied around them and, you know, helped fund their defense. And eventually, I think all of them were able to get out of prison after a few years. But yeah, I could see that and say, hey, that, that's that's a good thing, but I don't believe that the ultimate goal that the people who, who got that ball rolling was to to liberate or to, to help black people. Even though there were people on the ground that I think were sincere in their, their attempts to, to help blacks because uh, I, I watched a PBS documentary years, uh, it's like a couple of years ago, which is an old documentary from like, I think the 80s was I was actually shocked that they showed it because it's PBS. And I was like, oh, this the show's about the American Communist, you know, league or government or like uh organization. It's probably gonna be something that just fellates them the whole time and says so, how oh, great they were. But it, it started, it seemed like they were they were doing that at first when they were talking about all the workers back in the you know 30s or 40s, people helping out civil rights and all these other causes that you know believed in that. But it took an interesting turn when they talked about once the horrors of what Stalin did, particularly in you know Ukraine, the Holodomor, came out, how a lot of them had these major identity crises. Like so many of them had believed that uh, communism was going to be, uh, put them on the path towards freedom, to liberty. Savior. And to, to see that it wound up with the deaths of millions and millions of people, it was more than a lot of people could handle. And a lot of them renounced their, their communist status and became anti-communist. And I was really shocked that I was seeing this on PBS. I was like, am I watching the right channel? I'm like, what's going right. on? So it's, it's, it's an interesting, interesting history. You really look into it. it the, the socialists and communists like coming in <clears throat> and trying to infiltrate the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement and stuff in the sixties. It, it reminds me a bit of the way that predators will find a victim. That's already, he's already been a victim of someone else and they can sniff them out and they sidle up to them. Like, Hey, that guy took it real advantage of you. Let me protect you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like you're, you're this group that has been discriminated against historically in your country. You're in the middle of, of throwing off, you know, uh, that oppression or those chains and that, that influence. And, and, and then this other predator sidles up like, Hey, I'm here to help you, you know, <laughs> let me in, let me in your house. I'll protect you against that other bad guy. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It's exactly like that. And it, it was funny. Cause like when I was reading that book, uh, the Manning Johnson book, you know, he talked about how a lot of blacks back then and still blacks now, a lot of them didn't want to live with white people. You know, they, a lot of them just wanted to have a black area, but have that built up. 
They what? Should be doing that. I'm kidding. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. One of these guys was Malcolm X or something. I am Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay. I don't know. Anyway, but yeah, a lot of them did. They didn't want to mix with white people, but like when the civil rights groups or the NAACP and some of these communists kept pushing it and pushing it. it. It made a lot of people like Manny Johnson, like really, really suspicious. Like why, why you keep pushing this? You're not interested in really building up black areas. Just yeah. like black lives matter. Just like, like well, yeah. Marxist. Yeah. Avowed Marxist. Yeah. Okay. Before we move on, let me just read a couple of these pirates telling me I got a lot of things start. I do. Um, <laughs> Let me get the super chats first. Piratopsky gave us 20 lira. And he says, journalists from the West visited the USSR and experienced uh, Potemkin villages, then came back and reported how, quote, good it was all going. Of course, they didn't see any horror until people like George Orwell told it in his books. Yeah, Walter Durante was one of them that covered up for Stalin's crimes. Walter Durante of the New York Times, and didn't he win a Pulitzer for that for lying? Yeah. Joseph Fake. Stalin on the cover of Time magazine. Fake news. Uh, America seventy six. Hello, sir. Gives us twenty five dollars. Those are American dollars, and and says, <laughs> brutal, isn't it? Commies are adept at using your systems, values, and morals against you and your way of life. Once they have gained institutional power, as now, suffering and violence are guaranteed. And then referring uh, the summer of love, reference the summer of love. Yeah, that's true. That is yeah. true. You're right. I know they use it. I know. I know about you know Solinsky's the rules for radicals. I mean, the fact that people who have principles are like, well, you know, we shouldn't give the government the power to to round up and and deport communists, right? And they and they know that, and they know that we have that people have principles. And and you're right. They do. They do use that against us, but. I don't know. The, the Hollywood tin was paraded around as martyrs by communist parties, you know, and to the point where some of them actually felt like they were being used. They were being dehumanized by these people. They were just being put up as the poster child of, you know, being, you know, oppressed and victimized by the fascist government. One more super chat from the Build King for five dollars says, "Don't mind me, just simping over another excellent hat selection from Carrie." Thank you for noticing. I did say in tonight's show, nineteen forties hats are strongly encouraged. So I can't see what you guys are wearing, but I uh, hope that you've got on a, a dashing forty <laughs> chapeau. I know that you're wearing one behind your avatar, Chris. Yeah, I always wear the hat. I love hats. Um, and then I just wanted to read. A couple, these are a couple of comments that, because these are interesting. This guy, blah, Ula Meyer left. He said, uh, totalitarianism is the common thread that ties Marxists, Nazis, Islamists, SJWs together. They're all motivated by a totalitarian ideology. Suppressing them on ground, on the grounds of totalitarianism is the way. Misty Chris and Carrie's problem with suppressing commie speech hinges on a category error. The key notion here is totalitarianism, not anti-capitalism or un-American activities or some other notion. Okay. He does have a point that, you know, what they're calling un-American activities today, like parents who are going to school board meetings and speaking up against CRT, that's, 
they're calling that un-American, but it's not totalitarian. Mm-hmm. He does have a point. My fear is that they're redefining words like totalitarianism as we speak. I mean, uh, Justin Trudeau up in Canada, who's behaving in an authoritarian way, is calling the truckers who are there to protest for freedom, he's calling them the authoritarians. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain percentage of people who buy that crap. So I don't know. Uh, but you do have a point, blah. And then he he finishes it with saying, totalitarian ideologies are not speech. They are inherently, transparently evil constructs, pure tools of oppression, and offer no redeeming features. Those who employ and serve them merit, and serve them merit punishment. Note that these communists did want to overthrow the American government. And if you have a government that has a bunch of people in it that want to overthrow the existing order and that that form of government, then, yeah, that's going to be a major, major problem. It's something that needs to be brought to light. How you go about that, well, that's up for debate. But that there was a very disturbing thing that was going on. And now we can see what happened when it wasn't really... um, it, it wasn't fixed, you know, that, that cancer just kept growing and growing. And now we, we see what, what's happened. But can't we just defeat the, the evil ideologies with memes? I mean, that's <laughs> the way I would like to take them out. What are you going to get your kids these days? You rap to them or show them a meme? The court of public opinion. Is that no longer possible? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. Um, I did have a article. I wanted to read a couple paragraphs from it. Uh, Pirate, if you could bring up the, let's see, which one was this? This was the, uh, where'd it go? I can never find these articles. Oh, this one. Uh, the culture matters.org. I, I think, I believe this is a Marxist website, but I wanted to read a little bit of what this guy had to say because I, I always, enjoy trying to understand where people are coming from, even if they're... The headline is Marxism goes to the movies. But I I want to read this article because it talks a little bit about Marxism in the movies because as we we talked a little bit about earlier, even though the whole scare over communists in the government and and Hollywood kind of died down, we, we saw the uh, effect of putting these narratives in movies and TV shows and how that's influenced the culture, the culture values. So this person uh, goes on, I'm going to skip down to the portion right above the first video. Uh, That starts with Marx. So it goes on, he says, Marx had argued that the movement from class, a class existing in itself without self-consciousness of its distinct class interest to a class for itself was absolutely critical if it was to become a political agent capable of leading the fight for social change. The prospect that film might help the proletariat achieve such a degree of class consciousness and self-awareness was not an outlandish in pre-Hollywood American cinema. The medium had yet to become the powerful promoter of American national identity or mythology that it has or that it was to become. Instead, the screen teamed with ordinary people facing tough times. This typically proletarian milieu 
often included extended critical commentary on the dominant institutions of established society that made life for ordinary Americans so hard. Bosses, the rich and general policemen, politicians, the courts, landlords, governments, officials, and such like were frequently shown as greedy, petty, corrupt, vain, vindictive. Charlie Chaplin's The Tramp already being forged in the mid-teens embodied this uh, popular recognition of class inclusion and exclusion. But as the American film industry became quote-unquote Hollywood, i.e. an oligopoly of film companies that control production, distribution, and exhibition, uh, and was increasingly integrated with finance capital, so the proletarian image began to be marginalized in favor of a middle-class social milieu that stripped out a matern, uh, materialist, realist layer to early film. Nevertheless, the proletarian image could not be entirely banished. It was there in many of the lower B uh, budget B movies that some studios specialize in and at a particular moments, even with the new corporate structures. It would resurface with vengeance, such as between the 1929 Wall Street crash and the 1935 implosion of the Catholic-inspired morality censorship code, the motion picture production code as extensive censorship system as existed in the Soviet Union under Stalin, considerably infantilized American film culture, although smart leftist filmmakers could still navigate the system at tough times and subvert it. This it, that is, until the anti-communist witch hunts in the 1950s conducted by the House of Un-American Activities Committee used the post-Cold War as an opportunity to push many leftists out of Hollywood and intimidate those who remained into passivity. It was not until the motion picture code began to break down with the decline of the studio system in the 1950s and more significantly in the 1960s that Hollywood films began to break away from the censorious moral political culture that the bosses and the politicians have clamped down on. On it, Here, culture and politics interacted with the economic changes in ownership and a generational shift in attitudes that transformed the terrain. Much of that culture and politics that was most significant came from the anti-colonial and anti-imperialist uh, struggles of the so-called third world and its interaction with Western political aspirations. An entire genre, the Western, underwent a major transformation as a result. When, where it was once supreme colonial genre and mythmaker about America's own origins, it was now turned into a critical vehicle examining racism and inter uh, territorial expansionism, with, uh, which continues into the present. As a result, an excellent Western Hostilities 2017 starring Christian Bale demonstrates e uh, equally America's post-war consolidation as a corporate-dominated economy also became critically re-examined through the Western genre. The small town, the railroad corporations, the outlaw, these elements of the Western provide a manageable microcosm to explore the emerging power of capital while being historically distant enough to escape immediate censure and informal censorship. Can you... This is just like gobbledygook to me. <laughs> um... Also, I think your microphone is starting to pop like it does sometimes. Ooh. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, you might have to leave and come back. But but before you go, I just wanted to say this. This is you said this is a Marxist website, culturematters.org. So, yeah. yeah, so so it's a bunch of pseudo intellectual language and they make it extremely hard to figure out what it is they're trying to say when an intelligent person tries to make it very easy 
for people to understand what they're saying, even if their vocabulary is larger, even if um, they're talking about complicated theory or, you know, or philosophy, they try and make themselves very easy to understand. Um, this is the kind of stuff that I used to have to read in college where it's like, I feel like the person is sort of trying to put on this veneer of intellectualism where they pretend like they're so much smarter than you and they purposefully obscure what it is they're saying. So can I just ask you, was the point of all of that, that this person's trying to paint a thread of how Marxism became more, uh, it started to have more power within Hollywood after the 1950s and 60s? Is that what they're trying to say? Yes. Yes. Okay, how can they just say that? There's like three paragraphs. <laughs> uh, yeah, your microphone's messing up. See if you can come see if you can leave and come back. I'm gonna read a couple of chats until you get back. Um, look, guys, I'm sorry. I hate stuff like this. This is the epitome of though I'm kind of I'm kind of glad he read it because it's like this is what reading this is what reading Marxist uh, literature is like. It's it's uh, and social justice literature too. If you ever if you ever read Robin DeAngelo, which is social justice Marxism, they try and make everything sound more complicated than it is. And you're like having to parse through three paragraphs to be like, wait a minute, is what they're trying to say that is that is that we started to put more Marxism in film? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, why couldn't you just say that? <laughs> oh, <no>. Right. <laughs> But I, I, I think it's, it's like we were talking about earlier, how after the communists kind of were, they weren't banished, but after they were exposed, what was that? Was good. Marxism double plus good. Yeah. You could just say thanks to Vina. Okay. Sorry, what are you saying? But I do think it, it hints at the kind of beginning of what we see with the woke stuff how you start to see an infiltration of the storytelling and start putting more anti-capitalist, more anti-imperialist, anti-colonial storylines in films. Now, the thing is, I would argue that up until recently, a lot of these movies that had these uh, leftist narratives in it, a lot of them were still well-written to the point to where many of us didn't notice, or even if we were, you know, agree with some of it, it wasn't overbearing as it is now, but now, I think I and many other people living in this current environment, this current culture, are looking back at a lot of movies uh, in the past that we love and starting seeing uh, how much of these leftist, anti-capitalist uh, type narratives were in it. So uh, a, a franchise I love to death is the Robocop series. I love Robocop. I love Robocop 2. Robocop 2 is one of my favorite films ever. I love that movie. But... It is a the, the background story to it is a anti-capitalist, anti-neoliberal story. You know, neoliberal in the '80s sense, less so now. But it was a story that talked about a giant corporation that was seeking to privatize government and to really privatize or take over the individual to take the individual and make him property of the government. Now, there were tons of stories in the 80s, specifically about corporations and Wall Street, the movie Wall Street, and all these movies about these big, you know, capitalist firms being out of control, which true, a lot of them were. But the thing is, so many of them got as powerful as they did because of their connections with the government, because the government 
bailed them out because the government gave them subsidies, because the government uh, designed regulations to benefit them and to crush their competition, which allowed them to have unfair advantages in the market. And so when I look back a lot of movies like that, that side of the equation is missing, where it's just solely corporations that are out of control, and the corporations are the ones that, you know, taking over government, rather than presenting any kind of story where the government is taking over the corporation or the government is selling itself like a whore to the highest bidder <laughs> to help give that company corporation unfair advantages in, in the free market. And so I still love the Robocop series of stuff, but I'm, I'm a lot more sensitive to uh, these type narratives because I, I, I know a lot of people, a lot of people who criticize those of us who criticize movies, woke stuff go, oh, well, if you didn't, complain about this movie in the past that dealt with, you know, racism, white person being racist to a black person or men being sexist to women. Why are you complaining about it now? And I would argue there's a difference a lot of times uh, in, in a lot of the stuff that we deem woke, at least by my definition, I know it's kind of a broad term, but I tend to say a movie is woke if there's a explicit or implicit statement about the superiority of women or non-whites to white men in, in oh, you're muted again, Carrie. If it is racist or sexist. Yeah. If I, it is I, saying that like one sex is superior yeah. or inferior, one race is superior, inferior, mm -hmm. it's like, it's totally woke. But I, I, I do also think a difference is that even if it's not making as broad of a statement, uh, I, I think the way it's done is what causes that particular show or, or, or movie to be terrible, to be bad. Whereas, say, in the 80s or 70s, you could have a lot of these stories that dealt with more left-leaning uh, storylines or narratives that were still competently written, that still had good characters, um, good character development that, that really executed well on the technical levels, even though some of the aspects of the story were promoting what we consider to be a left-leaning narrative. And so I would say that's the difference between stuff of old and the newer stuff that's coming out now that's in your face far left. Mm -hmm. um how how many more i'm just looking at a note from pirate tomsky who wants to watch the monty python <laughs> clip and i want to watch it too but i want to make sure is there i know you have some other stuff pulled up what's the most important thing that's pulled up uh the only thing we don't have to talk about i only had an article about disney but we don't have to talk about that uh we can because we're, we're around an hour and a half now we can do the monty python clip What's the summary of that Disney article? Oh, it just basically goes a little, talks a little bit about Walt Disney. Walt Disney testified in front of HUAC, and he talked about how he believed that Disney had been infiltrated by communists because there was a strike in 1941 that um, uh, he believed that communists helped organize his his cartoonist and other workers were striking. And so talked about that, and then it goes on to talk about Disney today, how ironic it is that Disney is cozying up with communist china and all the things right? that are involved in that flies in the face of what walt disney himself was against right and uh and and about what's happening to the the uyghurs yes it talks and about, yeah. disney doesn't really care it's sort of funny again all these things that we heard about when we were kids that were like ah that was just a witch hunt. Mm -hmm. There was somebody in the chat earlier who said, I used to think all this stuff about communism from the 40s and 50s was a bunch of hullabaloo, but now I think there was some truth to it. And I'm starting to think some of that too, you know?
Mm-hmm. Um, and Disney has sort of embraced the the grooming of children in ed- public education. And I don't know. I just think they're maybe they've always been bad. <laughs> um, before we do that final funny clip, the front porch conservative was a super chat. Thank you, sir. There he is with this fancy hat. He says, Carrie, where did you get the awesome intro music? Well, thank you for asking. My husband made it. And you yeah. guys, I love any opportunity to say his name. You can go look at Anthony Garcia Music here on YouTube. And he's got a new song out called Devil in My Heart. And uh, he's going to be doing some shows. Actually, if you're in Fort Worth, he's going to be playing the Ridgely Theater this fall. So I hope I get to see you because I'm going to go to that show. Anyway, yeah, my husband made it. Um, let's see. Pirate Tomsky says, agreed. I'm flipping out right now when people argue left versus right. It's a wrong analogy. It's freedom versus totalitarianism. Yep. I agree. Uh, then we had one more. Andrew Joyner, thank you for the five pounds. Says, Hunter is a commie now, so it might be a train wreck, but train wrecks can be entertaining. Oh, he's talking about tomorrow's interview discussion. No. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. You know, I I hope it's good. I like talking to people who do. I mean, I do like, I haven't had enough people on the the channel lately who disagree with me. And, and I do like doing that in my real life. I do that a lot, like talking to that socialist guy. So we'll see how it goes. Um, Be kind to him guys. And uh, I think that's it. Oh yeah. There's a link to my husband's music. Thank you, pirate. Um, okay, so you queued up a funny video for us because this show is, I mean, we do talk about history and entertainment and all this stuff and pop culture, but we're supposed to have at least 90% frivolity. That was in the contract <laughs> when we started the show. So <laughs> we got to have some more, we got to end on some frivolity at least because this is kind of a really like, we just touched the bare, just the bare brief touch on the toe of history of the Red Scare. But um I need some laughs now. So what do you have queued up? All right. This is a skit uh, Monty Python did live in front of a live studio audience. We're privileged to have with us Karl Marx, the founder of modern socialism and author of the Communist Manifesto. (laughs) Vladimir Ilyich Yulianov, better known to the world as Lenin. Leader of the Russian Revolution, writer, (laughs) statesman, and father of modern socialism. Che Guevara, the Bolivian guerrilla leader. (laughs) And Mao Zedong, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. (laughs) Oh, Oh, he's not even Asian. (laughs) And the first question is for you, Karl Marx. The Hammers. The Hammers is the nickname of what English football team? <laughs> the Hammers. No, well, bad luck, Carl. It is in fact West Ham United. <laughs> Shea Guevara. Shea. Coventry City last won the English Football Cup in what year? <laughs> no, I can throw the question open. Anybody else? Coventry City last won the English Football Cup in what year? Yeah. No, well, I'm not surprised you didn't get that. It is, in fact, a trick question. Coventry City have never won the English football cup. <laughs> yeah, it's totally good. So now with the score all even, it's on to round two. And Lenin, your starter for $10. 
Jerry Lee Lewis has had over 17 major solid gold hits in the US of A. What's the name of the biggest? <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis's solid gold biggie. No? <laughs> yes, Marty Tom. What? Balls of fire? Yes, it was indeed. Even though he's making fun of a horrible dictator and murderer. Is Karl Marx, and our special prize is this beautiful lounge suite. Now, Karl has elected to answer questions on workers' control of factories, so here we go with question number one. You nervous, Karl? Just a little. Well, never mind, Karl. Have a go. The development of the industrial proletariat is conditioned by what other development? Uh, the development of the industrial bourgeoisie. Good, yes, it is indeed. Well done, Carl. You're on your way to your lounge suite. Now, Carl, number two. The struggle of class against class is a what struggle? A political struggle. Good, yes, it is indeed. <laughs> well done, Carl. One final question, and that beautiful, non-materialistic lounge suite will be yours. <laughs> Already, Carl? You're a brave man. Your final question. Who won the English Football Cup in 1949? Uh, the, the workers' control means the production. The struggle of the urban proletariat. Uh, no, it was Wolverhampton Wanderers who beat Leicester 3-1. Oh, <laughs> Get out of here. Well, no one leaves this show empty-handed, so we're going to cut off his hands. <laughs> That's great. Somebody said, oh, that was Terry Jones. Sorry, correction, Terry Jones. Yeah. Uh, somebody said, how is it that Monty Python was so smart and silly at the same time? Alan said that. It's true. I want to do a show on uh, British comedians, especially the ones that are very, like, based. Like um, uh, Roy Atkinson, played Mr. Bean, has spoken out in favor of free speech. Really? Lee has. I know about John Cleese. I did not know that Mr. Bean had spoken out. Yeah, he's a really smart dude. Kind of funny. Yeah. Considering that character. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Bean. What was your favorite Monty Python thing? Uh, probably one of movies, because I haven't seen as much of the show. Um, but uh, one of the segments from the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the Holy Grail. And he's like, Banner, Banner, she's a witch. How do you know she's a witch? She looks like one. Did you dress her up as a witch? No, 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 just that. And a nose. <laughs> that movie was so uh, important when I was younger. I, I don't know how many times I've watched it. I think a lot of people probably had a similar experience with that mm -hmm. one, just watching it all the time. Yeah, that's probably still my favorite. Although there are some very relevant portions of uh, the life of Brian now, mm -hmm. specifically oh, about I'm a woman now. Yes. <laughs> have, have people found out about that on Twitter yet? Uh, they... I'm sure they have. I'm sure that's part of the reason they hate John Cleese. And, mm -hmm. and actually, you never know how these things go. Maybe part of the reason he's based and sort of woke up to what's going on is because of criticism. You know, they face criticism for being problematic i mean like in that sketch for example having a white guy play an asian guy that's the thing about woke people is it's sort of um they're making fun of this murderous douchebag 
and throughout in history he it doesn't and you're and you're concerned that he's played by the right ethnicity right <laughs> who cares <laughs> yep that's that's uh Leftists in the nutshell. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's kind of funny. <laughs> anyway, um, well, thank you guys for hanging out with us tonight on our abbreviated history, the touch of the toe of the Red Scare and the Hollywood blacklist. Um, any final thoughts before we pull up the video to go out? Uh, I watched the new Jurassic Park this past weekend. Uh, it was not good. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry for you because I know how much you love the original, yeah. and but we knew it was going to be. Sunny. I know, I knew it was. Which I would say my it, it was slightly above my expectations because I knew it was going to be horrible, but it was still bad. Oh, pirate has another clip. He has the uh, he has the the the. We'll just play it. Life of Brian. I do feel rich that any anti-imperialist group like ours must reflect such a divergence of interest within its power base. Agreed, Francis. Yeah, I think Judith's point of view is very valid, Rich. Provided the movement never forgets that it is the unalienable right of every man or woman or woman to rid himself or herself or herself. Agreed. Thank you, brother. Or sister. Or sister. <laughs> Where was I? I think you finished. Oh, right. Furthermore, <laughs> it is the birthright of every man or woman why don't you shut up about women, Stan? You're putting us off. Women have a perfect right to play a part in our movement, Reg. Why are you always on about women, Stan? <laughs> I want to be one. <laughs> what? I want to be a woman. From now on, I want you all to call me Loretta. <laughs> what? It's my right as a man. Why do you want to be Loretta, Stan? I want to have babies. <laughs> You want to have babies? <laughs> it's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. But you can't have babies. Don't you oppress me. I'm not oppressing <laughs> you, man. I've got a womb. <laughs> Where's the fetus going to gestate? You're going to keep it in a box? <laughs> Here, I've got an idea. Suppose you agree that he can't actually have babies, not having a womb, which is nobody's fault, not even the Romans, but that he can have the right to have babies. Good idea, Judith. We shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother. Sister, sorry. What's the point? What? What's the point of fighting for his right to have babies when he can't have babies? <laughs> it is symbolic of our struggle against oppression. <laughs> symbolic of his struggle against reality. This summer... Isn't this amazing? This is just, uh, just, uh, I mean, this is... Over 40 years ago. I know. And you know what's really funny? It, it's actually relevant to the new Alex Stein video that came out today. I don't know if you saw it. Did you Did you see it? No, I didn't see it. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we're just going to watch the very beginning because he starts <laughs> screaming a lot and I can't take it. But it's hilarious. Um, pull this one up, Tomsky. So, you know, Alex Stein, he's, he's been on the show before. You guys can go check out the interview I did with him. I adore him. He's a comedian. He goes... And he does um, kind of Andy Kaufman style comedy where he interacts with the public and he, he goes to city council meetings and uh, just kind of messes with people and points out the absurdities of the culture that we're living in with comedy. And so today he put out a new video. I don't know if pirates got it or not. I might just pull it up. 
Um, here, let's see. See if I can share this. Oh, wait, no, he's got it. Alexandria Hayden? Alexandria Hayden. Listen, counsel, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, what is happening now is you are limiting what I can do with my vagina. First of all, you dictated what I can take at number two. You try to tell me that, oh, I couldn't go in a woman's restroom. But now you have Governor Abbott saying that I can't have an abortion. I can have an abortion. You don't have to take your hands off my vagina right now. You do not own my uterus. The uterus is mine. There's a clump of cells in there. We need to take that clump of cells and destroy it. Let this paper just take the clump. Okay, you can stop it there. Like the guy in the back. Yeah. The guy, he sits there like that the whole time, like this, like, ah. Oh. <laughs> the dashiki was the best. I thought you might appreciate that. <laughs> You're trying to tell me I can't have an abortion. Oh, he's a wild man. He is a wild man. Uh, somebody says he's very Monty Python ish. Yeah, he is. Yeah, except he does this kind of a. Uh, culture jamming kind of comedy out on the streets or at city council meetings, which I love. <laughs> so I saw, since you told me you saw the Jurassic park, we can end this with this because we'll talk about what entertainment we've seen. I finally saw the hunt. Oh yeah. Have you seen was, it? No. Okay. So after I, I had, I talked with uh, Tracy from keto and crime. We did my Carlo and I did an episode of her show uh, here on YouTube is a channel called keto and crime. And, um, we did an episode. I don't think it's come out yet, but we talked about horror movies and she recommended the hunt and the hunt. If people don't remember it, when it first came out, there was a lot of controversy and actually it was conservatives who were protesting it and trying to ban it because it, the plot line, the way it was described is a bunch of Trump supporters and MAGA people are hunted by these liberal elites. And so people thought it's this exploitation film, what have you. And, I think the original release date was pushed back because of the controversy. And anyway, it ended up coming out. I had not seen it. I just figured I'd heard about the controversy. I figured it sucked. She said, no, you need to watch this movie. It is so funny. It's like one of those, the kind of horror that's also got a lot of laughs in it. And the, the main character, it's one of the ones that plays with things where you don't really know who's going to be the main character at first. And the person that they choose is just stellar. She's just amazing. Uh, Hillary Swank is in it. She plays one of the liberal elites and it definitely doesn't make the liberal elites look good. So anybody who thought it was going to be, yeah, like we should do this, right? Like we should hunt deplorables. <laughs> like, no, it doesn't do that. Um, and I think it kind of, I think it kind of touches on surprisingly some of the very real stereotypes that we all have about each other it, for a horror comedy, you know, it, they have their finger on the pulse. So That's there's one part with, hmm? right, sorry, go on. Well, there's one part where this liberal elite guy is, kills one of the MAGA people and the MAGA person as he's dying says, you know, you're going to hell. And, uh, and the liberal elite this goes, I don't believe in hell. <laughs> he goes, and climate change is real. 
it's so stupid like it's that kind of comedy where you're just like okay like as they're killing people they're pushing their liberal elite agenda it's kind of funny <laughs> that's crazy because i remember like the the hoopla uh back when the trailer came out and how i like angry and people you know were getting at it and stuff so it's just it's crazy to find out that it's the opposite <laughs> yeah and there's one really funny part where oh, i don't know if i should spoil this should i spoil one little thing uh, we, okay yeah we, okay we movies i also want to like suggest stuff for audience you know, the audience has suggestions of us because we need to find good entertainment. There is still there's good stuff being made. You know, we just got to, you know, tell people word of mouth. Okay, Kevin says spoil it, so I'm going to spoil it. There's one really funny part where two of the deplorables uh, manage to escape part of this town that they're in where they're being hunted. And they get on a train. And on the train, there's a group of of refugees. And none of them speak English. And there's like one guy one brown guy who's like in leading, you know, hiding the other refugees and the two deplorables. It's a, it's a, I'm just calling them that for the, they're not really, you know, one of them maybe might be a libertarian. I don't know. Anyway, the two MAGA people who are being hunted, the woman is like, leave them alone. Those are, those are refugees. They just happen to be on this train. But the man, the guy's like, no, they're not. I know a crisis actor when I see one. <laughs> and he starts calling them crisis actors. And the, and the refugees are like, they're not speaking English. They're like, what's going on? Like, And he's pointing a gun at them and everything. And then this is the part that I'm spoiling. When they get off the train and you're thinking he's just, he's just paranoid conspiracy theorists, right? That they're crisis actors. The lead refugee turns to him and he's like, I don't think they believe you, Brian. <laughs> like he's, he's totally an actor. <laughs> it's just funny. It's like, oh, they know how to play with all these things. <laughs> Is this pirate? He was going to play the trailer for the hunt. Is this is this this is Pirate's Choice to go out on? <laughs> okay, I'm, thank you. I'm just removing it. <laughs> because <laughs> I don't want to watch the whole thing. <laughs> Although we did make you listen to three paragraphs of that Marxist article, I know. <laughs> Still, thank you, Pirate. Um, okay, well, thank you guys. Thank you guys for hanging out. <laughs> he says those are real heroes. Yes, they are. Thank you guys for hanging out. Um, if it's your first time here hanging out with us, this is a Wednesday night live show that we do. We talk about entertainment and the history of entertainment, pop culture, woke stuff, uh, what we like, what we don't like, and 90% uh, frivolity. Usually, we try to. And uh, yeah, consider liking and subscribing. Have a good night. Bye. Bye.